going to begin. Um, it is July 25th, 2017, and I am in Brooklyn with Luce Lincoln for the New York Transoral History Project, and um, which is an oral history project that seeks to document the lives of trans and gender nonconforming New Yorkers, as told uh, in their own words. So um, first, thanks for uh, agreeing to participate in this. That's a huge, you know, help and boon. I'm excited to um, talk to you about your life. Um, and uh, I think a good place to begin would be at the beginning. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about where you were born and what that place was like? Yeah, um, so I was born and raised in a place called Gainesville, Florida. And if you've ever been to Gainesville, Florida, it's a small city of about 150,000. It's probably was a lot smaller when I was born in 1979. And um, let me know if the airplane is an issue. And um, just, yeah, so it is a college town. And the primary economy is where University of Florida is. And so... um, my father was um, a professor there, and we ended up there um, actually not because of him, but because my mom, um, who's originally from the Philippines, um, her sister was living in Jacksonville, Florida at the time. And my parents both hate winter in the north, and they were living in Massachusetts trying to find, get trying to get a hold of their adult life and relocate. Um, somewhere and went to go visit my mom's sister in Jacksonville and they both were are scientists or were scientists and so um, they basically wanted a university academic centered place and so went to University of Florida my dad had a project he was pitching to different universities and University of Florida took it and so that's how we ended up there May I ask what kind of scientists they were? <laughs> yeah, so um, it's funny because I've been telling this story a lot lately, so I have a good like sound bites for it because uh, my parents studied. Like the thing I learned about science is that you, you can just be brilliant PhD person, and you can like kind of go around and go from one kind of science to another because it's like based in the same foundational knowing of things so um, my mom studied um, food science um, at MIT and got her PhD in the 60s um, and that's how she ended up coming to this country Um, and then my father uh, was kind of like this like white American like gone rogue wanted to like just live in the desert in Tucson and like got his PhD in zoology um, so he quickly realized after getting his PhD that like, it's really hard to make a living off evolutionary theory, <laughs> which is what he was studying. Um, so he took my mom's thesis, which was around single cell proteins, AKA algae, and sold that project as his way of like, bringing to the science world which he um developed more 
and needed to be in a warm climate for this to happen because basically he studied how algae could be grown from pig shit, <laughs> pig manure. And so what that would look like is um, you would create um, a water filtration system and a food source for the same pigs. So you take the water and grow algae and then you could filter the water. And so he ended up in the agricultural engineering department at University of Florida um, for 25 years. And my mom became more of a nerd into health science. So she worked for the med school as a research scientist doing immunology, pathology, oncology. She sort of kind of made her way through all kinds of different departments of the med school. Can can you tell me a little bit more about your mother? She she came so she was she grew up in the Philippines, correct? Mm-hmm. And she said she came in the sixties to MIT mm-hmm. to study food science. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about where she came from? That must have been quite a journey for yeah. So a young woman. So my mom's story is really interesting. Um, my family is from a small village called Pateros which is now part of Metro Manila, but at the time it was just like a a small farm town that um, basically, Pateros stands for pato, like ducks, and zapateros, like shoemakers. So it it was a really straightforward town where it's like basically they did two things. They they were manufacturing balut, which is the uh, duck eggs that become fertilized after 17 days. And you it's a delicacy in the Philippines or street food um, where you just boil it. And then it's like an embryo egg of a duck. Um, And then you and then slippers and they would make slippers. And so my family was on the balut industry end of things. Um, So uh, I'm like third or fourth generation balut. I don't know what you call makers balut makers you get the eggs you fertilize the eggs for 17 days and then you know sell them to vendors so my mom came from that kind of family and um her her passion was science she just like fell in love with science at some point in college or high school or something and so she she got a full ride to the university of philippines and then decided to pursue her phd Um, in the States and the Philippine government paid for her to basically study food science. Um, So she was sent, you know, like got, got all these like um, acceptances from, you know, schools and she picked MIT. So she went to MIT in 1962, migrated there. And um, yeah, she she says like it was really white, really male dominated and that she as a woman um, could outsmart anyone. So luckily she, you know, like had access to a lot of great professors and the, all her roommates and community that she was building with was mostly like women and that um, a lot of them were international. And um, so she she felt really supported in that and um she would send home all the extra money, which is not a lot. Um, but she had, uh, she's the oldest sister of eight children. So she felt a lot of like, you know, caretaking, um, because her parents passed away when she was 
15 and 20. And so she was kind of in this, like, I think awkward, both caretaker kind of more parental role, but then also, um, you know, young herself. So I think part of going to the States was both a way to do both, like both caretaker family and probably also focus on herself and her academic pursuits. Were your uncles and aunts on your mother's side, were were they academically inclined or were they, did they continue sort of the family business of... I mean, it, it kind of split into, um, she was uh, one of eight and f- there were four brothers, four sisters. And all the women were these like, college-minded, brilliant people who got their doctor, like, became MDs or, you know, like, got their master's in some kind of science or something, while all the men stayed to try to run the businesses and do a balut, and and some became successful in it, some were complete failures. Um, So that's sort of the breakdown of that family, uh, that the men... One of my uncles still does balute, um, but that's that's it. Did the did uh, some of her sisters go abroad as well? Yeah, so one of her sisters um, followed her to Boston and got, uh, I think, a master's there. I don't really know, or either she came and then fell in love and then did. I don't really know her. She she ended up mostly like. Um, starting a family and I don't know if she continued doing science there's a funny story that my mom like registered in her to study science for her because she basically was lazy and didn't want to sign up for two lines at the University of the Philippines so she was like so you're studying chemistry and her sister was like what I told you you know whatever <laughs> instead and <laughs> well, I want chemistry, so you got chemistry, you know, like kind of that kind of older sister shit. <laughs> so, um, but then uh, her younger sister ended up migrating to Australia eventually. So one of them lives in Melbourne, Australia, and she's the doctor. And she was a town doctor for a while, and then her, her and her husband um, migrated to New Zealand and then Australia in the 90s. And then, um, yeah, the one of them, and then the one of the sisters stayed and was like the caretaker for the whole family, like, you know, all the elders and that sort of role. And she passed away not too long ago, maybe two years ago. So you didn't get to meet your, your grandparents. Did you have any stories about them? Oh my God, I have so many stories. Well, one of the things I do is I'm a documentary nerd. And so when I professional, (laughs) um, so when I was very young, like very young, when I was 20, I was like, I need to like, know more. Like, there's just like, growing up in the States, I feel like this feels really one sided, you know, like, um, my my father is a complete character. He took up a lot of space in the family lore, you know, like I I could go on and on and on. That's like a whole other side of like oral history. But he was also a filmmaker, too. And so he had a lot of documents like he he would just like, here's a film I made, you know, like of this, you know, adventure that I did, you know, when I was, you know, 
28. And so he would like pull out these like in this hour long document of him going down to Amazon River and like doing this crazy shit like that. And I was just like, this sucks. Like when I became politicized, you know, I was sort of like, this feels off, you know, like I feel like I don't know anything about my mom. I like knew my dad's parents. We went to go visit them like every summer. I, I had so much history for their, for that side of the family that I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to dedicate some time to like, really just like know my grandparents because I think my mom's sadness and grief is taking up the space of her being able to tell stories, right? So I just went to the Philippines and lived there for three months and just collected stories and pictures and everything I could. I was just like, tell me more. And what was cool about it was that it was a time period where the family was still to kind of together. Um, I feel like one of the sort of sad things that I've seen in the decades since then is just like, family sort of fall apart based on like the older generation passing and like people needing to migrate for whatever different reasons and migrate out of the town but then also out of the country and you know like that there's just more displacement but I feel like I came in at a moment where it was still like here's the grandparents house and so uh, you know, my aunt that I was telling you about that took care of everyone. She, t- she came and took care of me when I was young. And so I had a real bond with her. And so, you know, I went to go live with her and she's living with my great aunts and my great aunts are one is a sister of my grandfather and one's a sister of my grandmother. And actually my grand, when my grandmother passed away, uh, my grandfather married her sister and so, so she is actually my step grandmother, and so they are all living in the same house. And these are the matriarchs of the family that basically passed on, that met, like passed on the responsibility of my grandmother. So, like, basically, one of them raised all the small children, um, and that was my Lola Lita. And then my Lola Monang was um, sort of like more the care- financial caretaker, and she like kind of raised all the older children including my mom and so um so I got stories from both ends and and they were beautiful narratives of like what my grandparents were like and who they were in the world and um I remember when I went back for the first time when I was like 17 my Lola Nanang like just pulled me aside and she's like I don't care what you're doing and she just rambled at me she was like kind of like this like person who was like old enough that like she couldn't hear so she 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 couldn't be interrupted right she would just like kind of like ramble 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 and she'd be like let me tell you about your grandmother and she would like ramble ramble and it was like hi what's your name again you know like I'm like sort of like still trying to absorb how all the families connected and she would just like sit in a corner and be like this is what it was like to lose your grandmother you know and like this is let me tell you about the day your aunt was born and my grandmother passed away giving birth to my aunt and so it was like sort of the one who ended up the caretaker yeah and so she she would tell me the story of like how it was like sort of sudden and what it looked like and all this you know like just give me this and then you know and how what an incredible woman my grandmother was and that she was like 
sort of this kind of personality that would like pull the family together and she started all these businesses including a movie theater and the 19 in 19 like right after the war like in 1945 um, for 10 years she ran this movie theater and so she brought in all these Hollywood films for the town to watch and so that actually is like part becomes part of the narrative that I understand my mom where I can imagine her being this young girl like watching American movies and being like what is this a beautiful incredible place I need to go to the U.S. you know and that actually I think is really connected to like probably my my mom would never like admit it but I think you know like becomes like a reason and pull to like go study abroad you know Hmm. yeah that's amazing when when was it that you decided to go to the Philippines and meet your you know live with these other aunts uh, I was 21, so maybe in 2000. Yeah. Now we're, I'll circle back, back to that a little bit. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your dad's side? I know you said that was yeah. another whole oral history piece, <laughs> but, um, you know, if you could, you mentioned he's a filmmaker. If you could tell me a little bit more about him. Yeah. So, I mean, um, so my my full name is Luz Capco Lincoln. Capco is very Filipino and it's my mom's maiden name. And Lincoln, you know, we all recognize Lincoln as a very American name, right? Like Abraham, good old Abraham. And so um, my dad comes from kind of like just an old school New England family, like, you know, that, that has a lot of roots in like... Where in New England? Um... In Wareham, Massachusetts is where they claim, and I do think that's true. There's a lot of roots in Wareham, Massachusetts, and New York City. So I think I think both should be said because um, the thing that I've learned about as like a family gatherer of history is that there's so many histories and there's so many fake histories that then become real histories. So like, like I love my dad's family because we're such a weird, like sort of trope almost of Americanness where it's like you're like okay really like like my great my dad's grandfather so my great grandfather was obsessed with the lineage of Abraham Lincoln how are we related to Abraham Lincoln so he literally like they're literally like books that he wrote about it like where they were just like family trees and like he's like this Thomas Lincoln of Taunton if he like was you know here in this time and this Thomas Lincoln over here that we're related to that means that we're just cousins and so you know I would actually get these like sort of like are we related to Abraham Lincoln oh yeah we totally are but I think we're not I think I'm like I think the likelihood is actually like whatever like it's just like Smith like I don't actually think it's like quite that deep that you know but if you ask other parts of my family like my brother or even my dad at the time they'd be like yeah totally we're totally related so it's like um it's like the sort of way I love to to imagine it is just like there's like such a um American myth uh and legend in my dad and in his lineage and I've spent a lot of time with that for a lot of different reasons. And part of it is that I I think that it, it 
it got me really obsessed with history at a really young age like because everyone was talking about history and like actually like my grandparents lived in this beautiful home that my grandfather my dad's father inherited from his father which was like this like family home of like seven or eight generations and so there were just like I could pick up a book and be like whoa like this was 1850 this was like this is actually a book that my grand great grandfather bought you know and it's like still sitting in the same place he probably put it you know like that that it just became this capsule of time and so it gave me a real like personal understanding of American history which was that um, white people own land white people stole land um, white people were given land like if they fought for the revolution which actually is how this land was given to my dad's family and everything in this land still captures what white settlement is and that is both a complicated and painful history, right? Um, and I'm one of the few people that I know that actually have access to that kind of physical understanding of what history is in this country. Um, because I feel like part of what Americanness became, especially in the 50s, is amnesia. It's like, how do we erase the white supremacy that we're experiencing, right? And how do we just keep reinventing it every through consumerism through suburbia through strip malls and so by the time I get to Florida I'm like we're so removed from land you know and Florida is built on amnesia right it's like built on mm -hmm. the land being a swamp that we only actually remember back to 70s because that's when the population like doubles so like I think while I feel really conflicted about coming from a lineage that I can directly relate to to the American Revolution like it gives me more understanding and depth of white culture and what it's built on I wonder what what do you make of this obsession intergenerationally with uh, people from your family wanting to be related in some way to Abraham Lincoln what do you make of the um That's a good question. I don't I don't know if I've like I think it has a lot to do with like power. Like I actually think my dad's family like had a lot of uh you know wanting to be more blue blood, you know, than they were or could be. You know, like mm -hmm. I feel like there's part of me that's like it it was just uh, a way and I think Abraham Lincoln became such an icon in a particular kind of way mm. that I feel like that was part of it like but like my dad's narrative of it when he would sort of like hold it up as a positive thing was like being a Lincoln means being honest and being you know like being uh, and being distant some in some ways from slavery too on some or having a more yeah and I think know. there is like yeah like I think there's like um but it, to be honest I don't know if white people are that attuned to that <laughs> to be honest I don't think people care like I think it, I think there's 
I think that's our understanding of what the Civil War was. But I think to people who were like a generation removed, I think it's fighting the South and it's it's standing up for a nation that um, was going to be torn into two and like that we we stood with the Union and what that meant was actually about standing for this patriotism and um, a United States that looks like this, you know? Mm-hmm. And I actually think white people don't care about slavery. I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't know what my, I think that's what my dad would like to say with this, like, we were, mm-hmm. you know, like, but like my understanding of what, who Lincoln was, like, I don't, I would always push back because that was actually my relationship with my dad because I was like, yeah, whatever white dude, like, let's 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 have a throwdown about this and that was like sort of our relationship i would be like well actually why do you think lincoln is so great and then we'd have these like political discussions how many kids were in your dad's family four he was the oldest of four brothers yeah wow and he was born in 1930 in new york actually and he grew up 12 years in the I want to say Upper East Side, um, about 95th and Park Ave. And at the time, it was a German neighborhood. And he describes it as, like, the worst time of his life. He hated New York. He would despise me if he knew I lived in New York. He passed away when I was 21. And so he... um, so he he did his best to like rewrite the narrative like we're from Wareham Massachusetts that's sort of like what everyone says we're from Wareham Massachusetts which you know there's the land to to sort of point to to be like yes but uh, my uncle also had a like really thoughtful thing where which is like actually we're from New York which is that like my grandmother my grandfather even like his family like mostly lived in New York and then they would go to the summers in Wareham Massachusetts because you can't make a living in Wareham, Massachusetts, especially if you're like, you know, middle class white family trying to do this thing because Wareham is mostly a tourist town. It was like a farm town. You know, there was cranberries. There was fishing. So where, where originally did they come from? Do you know that? England? Yeah. I mean, but we're talking about 1600s. That's amazing that you can go that far back, though. Yeah, which is why it's cool that my great-grandfather got obsessed with the Abraham Lincoln, because I can actually, like, do that pretty quickly, where I'm like, actually, yeah. <laughs> this Thomas and Ton, <laughs> if we're related to him. That's amazing. So, okay, so your father meets a uh, Filipino, Filipino genius woman, basically, while living in Boston. No, actually, no. I never said that my dad lived in Boston. Here's the weird thing. Okay. So the cute story of okay. my parents' love story is that um, basically my mom got a scholarship from a women's club in Wareham, Massachusetts, which happened to be run by my grandmother, my dad's mom. And so they became friends and really good friends, like my basically my grandmother became her host mother and was just like come home for the holidays come and they developed this friendship so at some point my dad comes out of the being a hermit in tucson and comes home for christmas and 
um, this is probably in 1967 and or 66 I'm not quite sure and um, there's like a huge snowstorm and then my mom was supposed to come to Christmas dinner and the buses stopped running and so my grandmother was like alright Ed you have to go pick up Gloria from Boston which is a good hour and hour and a half away and um, my dad was like I hate the snow though this is why I don't live in Massachusetts and so she was like I don't care here's a blizzard it was like a blizzard that he had to drive through to pick her up that's how they met and then they and then I think because of the weather but also because of the winter break she ended up staying like a week at the house and that's how they like sort of developed their their dating life and um became long distance between Tucson and Boston for a good year year and a half until she was like okay peace out I'm gonna go back to the Philippines um come get me when you're ready <laughs> like and um but she made the mistake and stopped in Tucson to tell him that in person <laughs> and he was like nah you you can't you can't go back let's get married now <laughs> and uh, that becomes a crazy story in itself too because uh, that was before cell phones and before telephones even so she sent a telegraph back to the Philippines a little too late so even to this day people are like all oh, the stuffed chicken that went to waste because we were waiting for you I can't believe you stood us up anyway that. So they had prepared some sort of engagement banquet or the wedding or? No, it was just a return party because she hadn't been home in like five, six years. And she, you know, they were like, welcome back, Gloria. And then she wasn't there. Wow. That's in it. That's also such an incredible image. I hope one day you use that in a film. Well, the best story that I love that I actually made a film about their love story so I have a lot of details is um is that years later then my dad would be like well you know I did see you in the airport in the Philippines and you know on my way in 1962 when you were leaving to go to Boston I swear I was in the Philippines and in the airport the same day and my mom would be like yo you're crazy like white dude like we don't all look the same like, how, what are the possibilities of you being in the Manila airport the day that I'm leaving for Boston? What are the possibilities? And he would be like, no, really, I have a good memory. I don't forget a face. I remember your family surrounding. And he would, like, describe the scene. And she's like, nah, there's no way. And then he's like, okay, I dare you to show me your passport. If our dates line up, I was on my way to Australia to make this film. You know, I swear that it was you. And they like pull out their passports and it's the same day. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Very faded. Yeah. But to this day, my mom is like, I still don't believe it. And I'm like, but what about the passports? And she's like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> probably forged I know right (laughs) okay so he's from this New England-ish family your mother's from the Philippines they finally seal the deal in Tucson Mm -hmm. correct 
Then they moved to Florida, to Gainesville, Florida, where they're pursuing their science careers. And you were born in Gainesville. So can you tell me a little bit about um, about what the your, you know, school age years in Gainesville were like? Yeah, I mean, as a child of two professors and right. Yeah, no, I mean, like, Gainesville, Florida is like a weird place. It's like very southern. Uh, it's about an hour and a half south of the Georgia border, so it's not. It's not like the beaches, Miami, Florida. We're talking about like all there is is like farmland outside of the city limits, right? Um, and even in city limits, which is why my dad is running a pig farm in the middle of the city, right? Um, <laughs> so um, you can tell that it's just kind of like, you know, middle nowhere. Uh, I grew up in this like neighborhood the house that I was born into is the one that I stayed in for all my life. It was like this like 1950s suburban neighborhood in the middle of the city, not like stuck in between two state roads. And on one side was like, you know, convenience stores and motels. And the other side was like a park, basically like a just wilderness of swamps. And if you've ever been to Florida, like everything just feels wild. Like it's just a kind of a wild place. So I think that's why my dad also really loved it. It was like as wild as a suburban, like legitimate professional job could get you, you know, like it, it, it just, yeah. Anyway, but I feel like I lived this really strange life of like, kind of like the outcast of Southern like black white context of society where um, my best friends were all Asian immigrants who like were either part of like the university or were part of this like state road business venture basically which is basically like the South Asian Indian family next door I like basically grew up in and they had like three families that lived in that one house and like basically ran the liquor store and the motel down the street and that's why they were there you know and we became best friends and I basically was like partially raised in this Gujarati family you know it's like really understanding all the context of Patels in in all of Florida really <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> so like I mean I think I we think, had some Patels in Port Charlotte where I grew up yeah I mean I think yeah like it becomes like very specific to an 80s like way of being which is like uh, I, who knows like displacement from globalization beginning and like us just sort of like piecemealing like otherness like in these weird places like I discovered when I was like um probably in middle school like the international housing like down the street where all the like cool kids lived which were basically all the kids of immigrants who were like there on like grad school postdocs or you know whatever you know who are like from brazil and from colombia and like all these like so it's like i i feel like one of the things i appreciate about gainesville is that i had a really international understanding of the world because it was such a like hot spot for like academics or even who my parents were like surrounded by even though it's very white you know like the city is very white and black and like um i grew up going to the black schools and lincoln middle school and you know like um that was fun 
<laughs> and um, it was very much like if you weren't black, then you got tracked into basically the white side, which was basically like gifted and AP and all that wonderful stuff. But I, the thing that I appreciate about it is that it it allowed me to have a relaxed, non like like very relaxed like upbringing of like um, ride my bike to high school and like fall asleep on the grass like to take a nap but still have access to like different ways of being and so I became like in high school really obsessed with art and filmmaking and poetry and used to skip high school to go to the university library and teach myself about movement histories and um yeah and I I found organizing at an early age too and and sort of alternative media and that sort of like really started my life path in this other way too and um a lot of that was because of it being such a small community and like um easily influenced by just like one or two things that were there which are like public spaces open you know like whether it's the library or like the alternative library that started and I'm like volunteering at fifth, age 15 learning about Chomsky I feel like it was a really cool way to like um enter into this like other leftist world which was kind of so influential in my life eventually yeah. And it was before the internet, so you actually had to show up to things. <laughs> exactly. And I, you know, womp, womp. and and it, part of it, it was like, I didn't really care. I was kind of the person who would be like the youngest person in the room. And this like, you know, like the oldest person being like the 70 year old founder, of, you know, like it was in the Vietnam War or something, you know, and like, and I, it was just kind of a um, small enough community that it, it, it didn't it wasn't driven by identity politics it was driven by like actually just like us wanting something different but and I came in in moments that I felt like were very special like there was a moment when a freedom school started and they were looking for you know youth to get involved and they like I got recruited. what was the impetus for that freedom school and what what year about how old were you um, I was 15, maybe, or 16, and it was right after, basically some, uh, some like, probably 20-something, I'm like, adults, you know, like, they, they seemed, but I think it was, like, probably 20 to 40, um, age-wise, like, folks who went to, they went to Jackson, Mississippi, I believe, for, um, a Freedom School reunion or something, like a like a 20-year reunion. And they came back and they're like, yo, we still need one. We need to be talking about racial justice. We need to talk about economic justice and gender justice. Like, what does this look like now? And so they started their own study group. And it was a multiracial crew of folks um, and people who were doing work in different sectors, like labor, women's rights, uh, black history and like access to black history in schools and so um they started a freedom school um through that so they took their own study that they developed for themselves and then tried to recruit young people into that and I was part of the first cohort and it was it was very 
awkward. There was some, in retrospect, some structures that I know. <laughs> they were really into consciousness raising, like, which, um, partly because 70s feminism was really big in Gainesville. And so there were a lot of still the, these forms of, uh, like consciousness raising circles that were still employed. So they tried to do that with us as young people. And I don't know if I would recommend that now, now that I do this work, but, um, can you tell me a story of what that experience, you know, from that, from that experience of going to this freedom school or being part of these activist ish circles? I mean, it was like as a high school student. Yeah. It was like a Saturday meeting. And basically there were like four adults who are volunteering their time to do this. And then I recruited all my friends (laughs) into it. And so then it was like, and I was like kind of this young activist, but I was just like, sort of like, yeah, cool. That sounds cool. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) Like that was kind of my attitude about everything. (laughs) Do I think I'm going to learn something new? Okay, cool. Yeah, let's do that. (laughs) Um, but I, I don't in, like I don't know how they convinced me to get there on Saturday morning because I've never been a morning person and I surely like going to do study at 10 a.m. on Saturday sounds like kind of hell now. But anyway, I, I joined this group and what it looked like was that they would like share different curriculum. So they would take turns sort of leading the education about it. And so then we would do one sort of movement history lesson and then we would do the next session a reflection about how that impacts us personally um so let's say we were doing black history uh and they would talk about different like movement history and how that if different ways sometimes it would be lecture style sometimes it would be like um telling stories or sharing documents or whatever but for the most part, it was pretty boring. It was pretty luxury. And then the next session would be like, what are some reflections that you have that are like, they would ask like three or four questions that were around like these issues and topics. And then we would sort of talk about our own personal experience. And in a lot of ways, I think it really helped because I don't think I was thinking that critically about all these things. And I think um, like maybe it was the first time I was like talking about what it was like to be like mixed race in the South, you know, and like, um, what that looked like in practice and whatever that looked like, you know, at the time. I mean, it, it definitely like lacked certain political direction and analysis. And it was definitely like, but I loved how shoestring it was. It was just sort of like, bring what you can, like in your cupboard that was our snacks you know like it was just sort of like sure i i have an orange tree outside i'll just pick some things and bring it <laughs> you know like kind of like it, there was like it was definitely in a time period where nonprofits didn't exist in the south you know at least i mean and if they did they were like service agencies you know for a particular medical need but not around organizing and so I do think that it helped me understand what organizing was and what um, dedication to a cause is without 
necessarily seeing it as paid work. Um, but I, uh, but I also came in a moment when also youth liberation was being talked about in a bigger way by white suburban youth. And so it was like kind of this weird moment where like I went from there to like youth organizing theory, which was led by my peers. And I would go down to like new college where they were starting a youth liberation, like, like space and, you know, you new college in Sarasota. Yeah. I, um, I had, um, a math tutor, (laughs) uh, from new college who (laughs) was this, uh, Korean man. He was like six, five, if you can believe it. Um, and he had a long, long, long ponytail and he was doing his PhD in math. And, um, so I used to go to New College on Saturdays. Oh, yeah, I love New College, but yeah, no, I mean, and then if what's hilarious is like, even the, the crew of friends that I went o- on vacation with, like half of them went to New College, or actually one of them I knew from Florida through other circles. And it's so. probably the most liberal college in yes. Florida. So Period. Like, hilariously, we all were at the same conference in like 96, which was this youth liberation conference. And hilariously, I don't actually remember any one except one of them. Um, it was called the Youth Liberation Conference? Or yeah. What? So, wow. I, You know what's so funny? Not to pull what your dad did, but I was at New College in the library doing math problems. I didn't understand with this guy in 1996, <laughs> but I had no... Yeah, idea that that was going on and definitely ushered away. Yeah, I mean, it was like a particular subculture. It was like very white driven. It was like not something I would recommend necessarily, but I think it was definitely part of my agency. I remember like taking some of the curriculum that I had learned at the Freedom School to this conference and doing it for my peers and feeling, you know, like confident, like running this workshop and I'd like I feel like those are sort of like when I think of trajectory of youth leadership which is kind of what I think about a lot now is like I'm like oh yeah that was a building block toward my own political understanding and abilities even if I didn't even if like being in such a like white spaces like alternative library or youth liberation or anarchy anarchist affinity group that I was in when I was 17 and started Free Radio Gainesville like like I was in very white anarchist spaces that do think that still like laid a foundation for what collective decision making could have be what um, what alternative structures look like in our society that's outside of capitalism um, what organizing looks like um, when you're not thinking about it in nonprofits. Um, I think it helped me lay foundations for like, um, then how do I take that into thinking about it in queer contexts or queer of color contexts or, you know, like I think it really helped lay, or even just like that ageisms exist and that as a young person, I, as a young person who was like 17, wanted a lot of access to things and a lot of access to decision making. And what that meant is that I went to a lot of adult spaces and just sort of did it, you know, whereas now I'm thinking about it as an adult and being like, there's no reason I can't like I 
I don't patronize. I'm like, you are 17, yes, and you can do this. And I believe in you because, you know, I was starting pirate radio stations at your age. <laughs> so you can make a film or, you know, insert. You can do my job. You can run a workshop. That's really fine. So Gainesville is also a ways from Sarasota, Florida. And I'm just wondering, at this, you know... <laughs> At this time, what kind of support or pushback or reaction were you getting from your parents as you were doing all of this sort of organizing? Uh, I don't think, I mean, I don't think they really understood what I did. I think they were just like, oh, you're getting A's, great. Do whatever you want. You know, I feel like they were just like, I mean, my brother laid, like is five years older than me and laid a lot of groundwork and was also a very active youth who was like a professional mountain bike racer by the time he was 15. So like, I think there was a level of like, oh, you're not trying to kill yourself by going down a like mountain at high speeds in Canada. Okay, great. Um, you know, he was a downhill racer and he would like starting age 16 or 17, like just travel around the United States and like race. And he was like, you know, top five in his class. And, you know, he was doing incredible things and very risky. So they were like, go to Sarasota. Sure. Do a conference. Great. Don't don't become a mountain bike racer. (laughs) So I became less jock and more intellectual and nerdy. Um, And they didn't really care what I did as long as I went to college. (laughs) Now. So you're in Florida in the 90s, mm-hmm. uh, in high school, um, in the late 90s, I should say. So like after Ilian Gonzalez, after the um, they deported all the Haitians mm-hmm. that the media had depicted as like having HIV, AIDS, etc. Mm-hmm. And, you know, events like that. Um, and I'm just wondering, in your freedom schools and these other conferences, was there a gender and sexuality piece and how what was that like what was that piece of it for you as a high schooler yeah I mean, high school student rather I mean I think I mean the thing I was very queer always very queer and I think what do you mean by that I mean I've always been like very gender non-conforming let me say and so like that will always be the lens in which I experience the world. But I don't think it became my political understanding until I got to college. And I think that while I'm like, oh, we were devoid of identity politics, there was part of it is great because I got more, like more, I got smart about neoliberalism when I was like 15, you know what I mean? But I I couldn't articulate my own experience until I started. And I do do appreciate that I lived in a college town for this because I did did have beautiful moments where like I met Gloria Anzaldúa like in 96, you know, and was like sitting next to her like in a small like women of color circle that, I don't know how I landed up in, but as a high school student, but you know, like those are moments where I like did a lot of, because I was such a leftist nerd would just go to every single event, every event, every, I was just like a sponge. I want everything. I want to know everything. And so, 
you know, it meant that, you know, when my brother and I went across country, like, I like ended up, you know, like going to every political event I could across the country. And when I was 17, and you know, like, part of me was like, such a nerd about different things, but I don't think I made the the political personal political connection as a queer person as a gender non-conforming person until um probably till I hit college but most not because college had a better political analysis I do think that political analysis obviously if I'm sitting next to Gloria Anzal duo when I was like 17 like really changed me but then also like I think it helped that college allowed for here's just a space for you to figure out your voice you know and like here's a video camera here's a radio station go you know and like and I just sort of like explored it more from my own experience because I had space too because that's what college classes were built around like now write a personal essay you know Mm. (laughs) now reflect about this thing Mm. now do a journal entry about this you know (laughs) you know so I want to ask you, can you remember the first time you felt kind of like queer feelings? I mean, I love I love my I love my take on just a queer narrative because I'm just sort of like, well, when I was four, <laughs> I turned to my dad and I was like, dad, what's a lesbian? And he says, uh, it's when two girls like each other. And I'm like, I like Glenlin. And he's like, no, not like that. It's like when two women kiss each other. And I'm like, well, I kiss Glenlin. And then, and I was like, I'm a lesbian. And I sort of came out to him. But um, I don't think he believed me. <laughs> Nor do I think I really understood. Um, but I think my instinct was there. And then when I was like seven, I love to tell this story because it, it really is like kind of like um, a root story, which is that um, there. Did you ever watch that movie? Just one of a one of the guys. Oh my god! Total root movie, right? Where it's basically this narrative of this woman who's like experiencing sexism at her school. So she's like, okay, I'm gonna become a dude, and I'm gonna pass, and then I'm gonna become this like a major, awesome journalist, right? Like I. <laughs> I love how wacky that 80s narrative was. But I feel like it was an instruction booklet of like how to pass. And so I would go to the video store every week and rent it and watch it and rent it and watch it and rent it and watch it. By the time I, I mean, I'm sure I watched it so many times that we could have bought it, but I just would rent it every week. And <laughs> so I, if I look at pictures of myself, like at this age that I'm like, see is when I start basically trying to pass as a boy where I'm just sort of like, oh, this is possible. And so <laughs> so I would just start like figuring out ways to like dress in my brother's clothes or, you know, like hide my hair in baseball caps. And yeah, and so that was that that becomes like a gender marker for me. And I feel like as far as sexuality goes, I don't feel like I really came out to myself until I was 14 and that was based on just like accident of somebody asking me and and then I had to really examine I was like oh that's interesting yeah um so how how was your gender perform I hate that phrase gender performance but (laughs) sorry let me start over 
Um, you're dressing like a like a boy uh, and going to school in Gainesville. Um, how how was that received? How? I mean, the thing that I appreciate about living in a place that is actually pretty rural and also pretty working class is that I don't think people really noticed. You know, they're just sort of like. Oh, that's interesting. You know, like tomboy, great. You know, um, I don't. I didn't. It doesn't have the same. Yeah. I didn't experience it as. I think I experienced it as as there was a certain age in which maybe I felt I needed to perform something different, which is like probably true for for any sort of puberty hitting. You know, where like around twelve, I was like, whoa, okay, let me try to date boys and like be a girl and what does that look like and it was like the most tomboy version of that and um and that lasted like a year and a half or so until grunge hit and then i was like yes grunge i love you thanks for <laughs> opening the doors to flannels and my brother's clothes again <laughs> wow <laughs> And baggy clothes that I can get away with wearing. <laughs> so so then that became like a whole other style where I just like wore a size 42 like skater shorts and like long hair and just like, you know, did that for a while. And, you know, I think living in a hippie town too, like I think there was just like room for all kinds of expressions of otherness and artists, da da da. You know, I don't, I mean, the thing that, if I were to be like, okay, what stands out the most? They're like, you know, close relationships being like constantly like, like when the neighbors that I grew up with, they, them noticing and them call, they called me Leo as in Leo Len- Leonard from Spock. Do you remember? And I don't know why, but then it became Leo nerd was my nickname. And like, and so like those kind of things would stick out as like, I definitely got bullied, but it was like the intimate bully of like family, which it becomes a little different than your like everyday like homophobia, I guess. It was like both more personal and also more like I would notice it if my aunt from the Philippines came and was like, what are you dressed like? You know? And I'm like, grunge. <laughs> You know, like, I think my own understanding of my gender was so based on, like, alternative culture that I'm just like, yeah, whatever. You don't understand me. (laughs) Nine Inch Nails. Play. That's amazing. So, I mean, I do think also having a brother to sort of be my role model. Like, I didn't think of it, like, as if I was transgressing gender I was just sort of like emulating my brother so like and he was cool with it so you know like I think having that support was really helpful he's like gosh can you just get your own clothes (laughs) let's go to the thrift store (laughs) like there was this sweet moment when I was 17 it was the last time I had long hair um I was like Ted I want to shave my head but mom says I can't do it and he's like all right Let's do it together. And we went to the hairstylist um, 
and she charged us five bucks to shave both our heads and um and then we come home and my mom was like tear like so pissed at him that she was like "Ah, i'm not talking to any bald people no more bald people (laughs) and wouldn't talk to him and he wasn't living in the house at the time and so she she wouldn't talk to me or him for like a good week and she was so terrified she was so upset and she knew like i think those are the moments when she's like oh uh oh this is real this is not a phase this is no longer grunge <laughs> this is my kids and tomboy damn <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and um but she rolled with it very very openly and my dad was actually more homophobic than my mom where she he would since i was 14 be like what are you dyke and just kind of like get really upset when i was like just being tomboyish and wearing my flannels. And so then you you went to college after shaving your head with your brother. <laughs> At some point after shaving your head with your brother. Mm-hmm. And uh where did you where did you go to school? And what was that like? Um I went to college at Antioch College. And I sort of I mean you know, I think I living in this like sort of alternative organizing youth lib world, I remember going to a friend of mine who was going to new college at the time who was like, you know, probably 21 or something, you know, like this. And he was like, I was like, yo, Andy, what school should I go to? And he like makes a list. He's like, don't go to new college. <laughs> and and he puts Antioch on the top and I'm like forget about the list and then like make my own Capricorn like spreadsheet of all the ones that I'm going to apply to and I apply to like 10 colleges and I put Antioch on that for some reason like at last minute I'm never even I don't even know where Antioch is I'm like Iowa Iowa where is it Ohio okay whatever Midwest Who, who wants to go there but for some reason, I felt very, like, just, like, impulsive about Antioch, so I just do it. And then they're the first college to accept me. Uh, and I was like, oh, interesting. There's, like, like, do you want to save the world? There's, like, a bunch of queers on the catalog. And I'm like, that's cool. Yeah, I do want to save the world. <laughs> I don't know. It's, like, such cheesy marketing. And... Um, they offer me a scholarship and I'm like I guess I should check it out so I go and I'm like yeah Ohio New York New England whatever what's the difference it's all cold so so relate to that so I was just like why not and so um, and also I was really drawn because you know the, the sort of nerdy anarchist that I am I was really drawn to the governance of Antioch which was basically like really youth-led youth student run everything you know student run government student run town town meetings you know like every every week you have a town meeting that everyone goes to and then you make decisions and I was like oh yeah totally I was like such a collective decision-making nerd I was like consensus yes I'm in um so um 
it was it was a different and also part of the reason I was drawn to it is because they had this internship model which was like every other semester you had to go out in the world so I was like if I get stuck in Ohio it's not that bad because everyone I talked to is like oh yeah I went just got back from New York and San Francisco I just went on this thing abroad da 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 so I was like really into this idea of like okay I'm gonna travel the world now like five internships in four years great done and actually that's how I ended up going to the Philippines for semesters that I just was like sure this is an internship and like found this like independent film organization that I volunteered for and made that into an internship and lived with my family and that was really really amazing but only after I did a misstep of going to Costa Rica first and I was like why am I in this foreign country and not in the Philippines and so like I think it really allowed a different kind of reflection and experience that was like helpful into my like world understanding and like also freedom to like do what I wanted you know and build my education the way I wanted and and so you entered Antioch in like 1998 then that that's exactly true I graduated high school in 97 took a semester off and then and entered January 98 and you're studying film predominantly. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, um, that actually became like the dreamy part of Antioch. I I sort of lost faith in it as an institution pretty quickly, like a private school, liberal politic. You know, like I could see where all the holes were when I was even that young. And I was like, let me just go home and go to new college. You know, like. And I actually did consider about doing that, but then their media program was so strong. Um, it was, I, I still think I've never heard of a department so committed the way it is to like social justice framework, um, media making, um, sort of the, the sort of praxis of it, thinking about it in how do you make media, but also think theoretically about it. And then also... Um, it being multimedia possibly it was like a communications department so there was like like the the framework was not built around doing video or film it, like which now that I've you know gone through film programs I know that like the limitations of that kind of thing but it was built around we believe in social justice what it, how does media become the means to that and so I got to really like sit in that which weirdly was already my passion you know and then you like sitting in an alternative library reading Noam Chomsky so like you know like I'd already it it sort of fit me in this like so perfect way and new school didn't even have a video camera so I was like I was like oh well I guess that's out <laughs> so after you finish at Antioch and you know you connected with your family in the Philippines you you know traveled you've done different internships whatever what what did you do? Where did you go next? Well, I think I should pause for a second because I think part of my story is that, like, when I go to the Philippines, it's actually when I come out as trans to myself, to my understanding about gender being really this sort of moment. And 
when I was 20, so the year 2000 was sort of like the year that changed my life. And so like going back to the Philippines really changed my life, right? Like getting all these stories from my family changed my life. But then also I came out to myself and um, I, you know, was reading Leslie Feinberg and Kate Bornstein and sort of just reflecting on my own experiences. And all of a sudden all of this stuff comes together where I was like, whoa, <laughs> you know, like grunge, gender non-binary what you know like it sort of like kind of explodes and um and that's when I really feel like othered from gender like it's sort of my articulation of it is like whoa like I'm in the Philippines like the gender dynamic is so both so scripted and there's so much trans people around me like that it was sort of figuring it out like what does this mean? You know, like trying to understand gender context in the Philippines, which in the Philippines is like somewhat like Thailand or, you know, even some other places I can imagine in Latin America where um, the third gender sort of exists sort of unsaid, but is sort of everywhere, everywhere you look. And so like a good example is that my Lola Lita, my great aunt, uh, has this butch partner, but she's not, a, she's just a family member. She just, sleeps next to her every day and is like a total like you know like butch you know like she's just like and we have this like bond um, that happens in this moment and and it was beautiful and also I was like constantly criticized by my Lolita for it too you know where she was like had all this internalized shit that she would just be like why are you wearing these boy clothes and then Pitang would secretly be like hey can you know like you know your cousin just bought me this wallet it's a woman's wallet next time will you buy me a wallet that's like yours and like sort of like had this like whole underlying code of like so your your aunt was in a relationship with another woman my my grandmother really my great great aunt oh your great aunt yeah the relationship yeah the the sister of my grandfather yeah but I mean, people say, I mean, they were in. How did you? Yeah. How did you understand their relationship? I was like, what's going on? <laughs> but, you know, family members would reflect it back to me over the years. Like, oh, you're like Pitang, you know, like and understand it. And Pitang would reflect it back to me. And actually, the, they just both passed away this year. So there this picture on my altar is a picture of them. And this is a picture of them dancing together and this is when I went back I think I don't think this was 2000 I think this was 97 or 96 when I went back and for the first time in high school with my mom and then and then how I understood it I would always ask my mom she's like well Pitang is like a family member you know like she just is the caretaker of your aunt, you know, like my aunt, you know, like, and I'm like, caretaker, what does that mean? But like, what's, but what's beautiful too, is that over the years, I would push back on my mom about that. I'm like, what, they're partners. And they're such, I mean, they literally um, passed away two weeks away, like from each other. And part of it was, I think, the, the Pitang's own heartbreak of Lolita passing. And, it's just so clear to me that they're that they were if they were not sexually involved they were such 
romantic partners in this other way that were. Did your grandfather's sister have any children, or did Pita, or were married? Well, but that's what I mean. Lola Lita has become the mom of my aunt and got it other aunts so she didn't have any children of herself Mm -hmm. but she raised half my family my aunts and uncles got it so like and so she's the youngest i just want to clarify that i know i i'm sorry it's my own like i'm trying to just clarify oh no she's not the youngest she's She's so I have two great aunts that end up becoming right. the matriarchs, and okay. so she's one of them. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And she has lived with this person who's very butch. And so you go since to the, the 60s. Si- since the 60s, she lived with her. Yeah. And was part of a family. Yeah. And this person wanted a wallet like yours. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So it was, we had mirroring genders in this way. That was like, we wear men's clothes. We, you know, like do men things, whatever that is. But it also this gray area. Like, what do you do when you're in this gray area? And so we couldn't talk about it. I couldn't be like, so what's your queerness like? <laughs> you know, like she did not want to talk about it. She just wanted to be in the family and and she wanted to get the right gifts that's all like i you know like i don't i don't think i think it was a different way of being and so when you went to the philippines was this the first time you're interacting with all of these relatives uh what age 21 no i mean because i go back in when i was 17 too and so that became the first but it was a quick trip it was like three weeks and i'm it was the first time, but I had a lot of relatives come to the states, so I met a lot of people through throughout my life, and so. Um, but it was the first time I had went back when I was an adult, or like able to remember, because my parents would take me back when I was a kid, like a lot. So my first memories are in the Philippines, um, but then there was like a time period when they both. I think the, I think both our financial situation, but also. Um, other conditions like their professional life or uh, school that's a huge yeah maybe the dictatorship too in the Philippines like you know like Marcos Marcos. I don't know there's all kinds of conditions why it slowed down and then yeah and then I think my 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 mom didn't want to leave when my dad's mom was sick and so there was some, some of that as well so it took a while for them to go back and bring us but by then I was so 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 let me go back. So then in year two thousand also my father got sick and he gets terminal illness and like in a matter of four months passes away. And so I I feel like that really taints my college experience. I'm like I feel like I'm like, whoa, I'm like trying to undo white supremacy in my understanding of life and come out as trans and then the patriarch in my life who I hate is dead now and so I'm like whoa um so it slows me down a lot my mom also got sick at the same time so um she got diagnosed with breast cancer my dad got colon cancer so all of a sudden it's like 
I'm like in this other reality, I guess, where I move back to Gainesville for a semester and um, start working on a film to sort of articulate everything. So that's when I take the footage and I make this film about myself and about my parents and sort of this whole story, which I called the autobiography of an ocean. And it was like half an hour personal documentary that, um, that sort of even talks about, you know, my trans identity in this, in this moment, which is like contextualized because I feel like part of what I feel envious of young people that I work with today, which is like, you know, I get 14 year olds who are like, I'm a trans masculine gay man. And, you know, my pronouns are he, him and unicorn. And, um, you know, like <laughs> really beautiful people. But, you know, like the articulation that young people have around gender is so advanced and thoughtful. But one of the things that I feel like I missed out on is but also was trying to articulate is like, how do I understand non-binary identity? as a mixed race person, as a queer person who doesn't necessarily like identify as gay or lesbian, but understands it as queerness. And how do I understand my trans identity in that? And so like, I kind of was trying to name non-binary without there being a culture around it, without necessarily being like, I go by they, them, you know, like, I was sort of like, yo, like, one of the things I can take away with the culture of Philippines is that there's one singular pronoun called cha. And in some ways, that's the root of what gender is understood as in the Philippines, you know, and sort of the, the beautifulness of these like gender nonconforming people everywhere, not just in a queer culture, but in like, you know, folks just like town fiestas sort of honoring trans women by having a pageant that isn't drag. It's, it's sort of like hard to understand, but it's like sort of rooted in a culture that sort of also ashames it, you know, like homophobia is real because of Catholicism, but you can still see roots of this like beautiful, like, you know, um, honoring of gender nonconformity lives, like in these other weird ways that still are in rooted in certain cultures of towns or even here's kind of a tough question I'm going to ask it anyway though and you can think about it or whatever do you think at that moment in your life you would have had the ability uh, capacity or insight to come out as trans to yourself if you hadn't gone to the Philippines yeah I do and I think it I think it was sort of like I think I would have understood it differently because I think I was still, I mean, it was, it was both because I was like, I think one of the things that's hard is, is in time period in the late nineties when trans identity is really becoming mainstream. Not, I mean, mainstream is such a relative word, right? It's like in the queer culture, like in LGBT, we were fighting for T, like, like T wasn't there before. And so everyone was fighting for T to be added. Um, Leslie Feinberg is publishing books about trans history, you know, and uh, I gravitated toward that. But I knew at the root of it, Leslie Feinberg, Kate Bornstein, I'm like, you guys are white people. I'm like trying to deconstruct white supremacy over here in my own personal life. And I'm like, this is not the mirror that I want. This is not the language I want. 
but this is the identity I feel. And so it felt really awkward. I've definitely felt this tension of like, who, and I do think that it, in some ways, has kept me more non-binary and less of this trans narrative of like, I need to go on hormones, I need to pass in this particular way, I need to like, um, get chest surgery. Those are not things that I'm not, that I don't think about every day. I do think about it every day, but I think if I hadn't gone to the Philippines, I might've fallen a more white understanding of gender, if that makes sense, because the community around me was like, this is, this is what we're fighting for. We're fighting access to hormones and they're getting on hormones and we're fighting for like, you know, being understood. And for me, I feel like having Pitong as a mirror of like what GNC is, was like a beautiful way for me to be like, actually, I can, I can be Sha, you know, I can be sort of like in this in-between space in the work that I have to do is like go into rooms and be like, I prefer he, him, even though most people would not classify me as that in, in that sort of external way, you know? And part of me is like, I feel fine with that. You know, like, I feel like that makes sense to me as part of my queer identity, you know? There's like a certain level of serenity or something that you're, I don't know, that yeah. is coming across when you talk about that. Yeah, and I and I think I tried really hard. Like, I think, um, you know, I like... So then part of wanting to give that backstory is that after I graduate, I mean, I think I probably, had my father not passed away, had my mom not become sick, I probably would have just moved to New York and tried to become an artist, you know, like here and maybe lived a different trans life you know like um the community that would i would have been surrounded by but i was instead forced to go home and take care of my mom and sort of like deal and that became harder where i was like now in gainesville florida with this sort of understanding of myself as a trans person as a queer person of color and how do i navigate gainesville florida and like early mid 2000s in this in this community and that was really difficult and it ultimately is what probably doesn't keep me there because I'm like a little bit like I feel lonely I feel isolated I feel like not seen I feel like I'm struggling to be like out as a trans person I don't like I know like three white people who are you know like trans but that's about it you know like and so I just felt really like lonely and I was like okay let me my best friend was living in Philadelphia and going to film school there and I applied to film school and was got in and was just like all right let me go to Philly which is a total different landscape of like access to hormones and you know like culturally like a lot of trans folks like talking about it being like trying to figure it out together and but but what was interesting about that is that you know then I gravitate towards support groups like what does trans masculine support group look like and I was just like this is not me either you know like it was like really like 
it became a different kind of narrative that was just like we take hormones and then we pass and this is my struggle as somebody who's rejected from butch lesbian you know like community and this is my struggle as like women straight women not being attracted to me and I'm like whoa no that's not me either you know like you know like and so I just sort of like hovered this this weird world and then I was just like okay I started creating my own like GNC community like kind of didn't really fit anywhere when you had moved to Philly from Gainesville was the Philly Trans I don't know the history but was the Philly Trans Health Conference going on at that time yeah yeah. so they had Philly also as like you know a place where you have trans folks moving in and out you have the Mazzoni Center you have you know different other colleges and yeah all kinds of things and you have West Philly which has become this like weird queer enclave that like is of a particular white subculture but it creates like a nuanced gender understanding and you know I met a lot of amazing folks um, a lot of folks you know like that I think you know that I don't know if I would have met in Ga- if I stayed in Gainesville you know it was like very like I'd like the center around like we, we want queer culture we believe in social justice we believe in art and we believe in loving each other the best we can you know and like I think that value is really there in Philly and it was limiting and I felt a little like I don't know I don't know if I should stay here so I fell in love with somebody who was living in New York and I ended up like kind of living both lives of Philly and New York starting in 2008 so only a couple years after being there and what I loved about New York was like all this beautiful queer POC centered organizing. Right. And so, um, I would come here on the weekends and then go back to Philly and go back to grad school and be like, Oh, this sucks. But had my cute QPOC family there and didn't want to leave because also living there is so cheap and I could do everything that I wanted. I was like, you know, I could, I could make my art, I could do filmmaking, I could, you know, mostly prioritize my friends and and not have to, like, hustle as hard as New York. When you were in Philly, where, where were you studying film? Temple. At Temple University. Now, Temple um, has a pretty, uh, you know, well-known, I guess, tradition or roster of, like, queer filmmakers on mm-hmm. staff. Were you there at all when like um Cheryl Dunye was there any of those kind of or Elizabeth Subrin or the whole range of people that might have been on stage I studied under Elizabeth Subrin um and Michelle Parkinson actually is one of the ones that I think is more memorable which she's she did the Audre Lorde documentary um she's such a beautiful human and she unfortunately um left temple right like a year into me being there and didn't have a lot of mentorship with faculty but I loved the community that it attracted it was like mostly sort of outliers of like people who wanted to go to film school but who were international students or who were like queers or who were you know like thinking about social justice documentary or like it had a broad range of people it attracted the department was 
by far not perfect and mostly was white men still and mostly had a very like traditional film school curriculum but I appreciated some of the the different nuances and Rian Tangiri started working there when I was there who was like one of my when I was like an undergrad like one of my heroes of um she did uh history and memory do you know that old video art (laughs) documentary about internment camps anyway it's a beautiful piece and and so it was really cool to be able to work with her and um Alyssa Subrin is a brilliant person and uh the only thing that I would say is that I was trying to do sort of like how do I become a you know this beautiful organizer who cares about media justice and the movement and you know like all these pieces and also make documentaries or be a filmmaker and um the thing that was most harmful about grad school is that people kept being like you can't do both you can't do both and Elizabeth Subrin was one of those people when she was just like don't do both do one or the other um which I didn't believe I didn't believe that and so I still feel that time period was kind of like me being kind of awkward like not knowing where to professionally grow and I think it it both helped me and stunted me at the same time but the the sort of beauty of it is that I feel like if it wasn't in Philly, I don't know if I would have like found my queer community the way that I needed in that time period. So, so after okay, so after you finish uh, graduate school, where where did you go? What happened? Well, I moved to Sunset Park. <laughs> couple a block away from you (laughs) um and uh part of it is because i you know like this falling in love in 2008 um meant that we had to make a call philly or new york and uh yasmin tried living in philly for a while and that didn't really work and so then i i come to new york and uh, yeah i don't i don't have any regrets about it i love I think in retrospect, a place like Philly both is great and can get stagnant. And um, I think it is sort of the growth that I needed is to leave that city. Yeah. And so tell me a little bit about what you do in New York. I think that's a good way to sort of, um, you know, we got so much... Mm -hmm. I love all your stories and your detail and now we're like we're approaching more your presence so tell me a little bit about your what you do what you know are you more of a media organizer or a documentary filmmaker or both at this point I mean I still like to try to do both um I think I, I mean one of the struggles that I had in grad school was I was I think one important detail is that I got pulled back into queer organizing in the South um, through Southerners on New Ground. And I was documenting their work for a while. and But also trying to figure out how to be an organizer. <laughs> and I felt this longing that I was like, I need to go back to the South. But because I fell into this relationship, I decided to stay in the North. 
And I do feel still such affinity to work by Southerners on the ground. And I think it's important for me to say this as a oral history that like um, the South is an important place for us to be thinking about queer identity. And it's important for me as somebody who like kind of was this awkward trans GNC kid, you know, in Gainesville, Florida, to imagine that as my political home as well. Like my political narrative is that like, I came out of freedom schools, actually. Like my grounding is out of what is it like to fight for civil rights in a place that has the history of slavery, you know? And I think, um, I think when we're rooting our our identity more from a point of history like that, which obviously telling my narrative really feels like that that was like kind of my calling always is to think intergenerationally and in these like centuries rather than decades, is that I do think that um, my narrative is that maybe if I didn't fall in love, I would have returned to the South because I think often like myself where I'm forced out because I don't see community in a place where my family is, um, feels sad to me. And I feel like in this moment where we're all getting kind of displaced by far right, like beliefs that the bubble is helpful for survival um and i i don't deny that at all and one of the things that i learned from southern organizing is that popular education is really important and what i mean by that is that we have all the knowledge that we already need to know and that being part of an organizing community that understands that um, will sort of be a beautiful way to build a base, right? And so I came to that understanding like in my Southern organizing nerdness. And then um, when I was in graduate school, I was like, but what what is making media look like in popular education? And I couldn't sort of formulate it but what it did is it, when I got to New York, I was like, okay, I got to work at a place like that, like the only place that I know that does that, which is Global Action Project. And part of that is because Global Action Project was thinking about education, not just media making, right? And so they were thinking about um, youth leadership, youth development, and what does that look like in politically developing young people? And... I think I live a weird, strange life. Like, how did I come from, like, Gainesville Freedom School to Global Action Project? I'm not sure, but um, that's currently what I'm doing right now as I work as a program director there. And one of the beautiful things that I love about working there is that um, every day, like, the goal of my job is, like, to build a community that is intergenerational but mostly youth-led Um to make work, to make film, but also media that is about 
social justice work. But the goal is not necessarily just to finish a polished documentary about this new, like, current issue, but it's really about how do we build a community that is feels empowered, um, because that isn't you know represented, but also is most impacted by institutional oppression, right? And how do we get those voices to the front of our narratives, but at the same time building their agency to like do organizing for their communities. And that's a beautiful like daily work, you know, like it's it it gives me a lot of feeling of like uh, like I've arrived to a methodology that I felt really I've been trying to articulate since I was like in Antioch college class or even as a young person writing a zine called Bells and Cells after Gainesville Freedom School. Like, you know, like, I think there's part of me that's been like on this hunt since I understood the way in which, you know, we're manufacturing consent, as known Chomsky says, you know, like um, to build an empowerment through media making that is not only reflecting ourselves, but able to articulate our voice and to build the relationships that we need to survive you know and it's not easy I actually don't I mean we're doing an okay job but you know like what I it be it comes more cultural organizing than I think sometimes like if I say oh I work in an after school doing filmmaking it's not nearly what I do (laughs) it's like um just how do we approach holistically making media from the root causes of you know people's lives you know like how do we support them like as a trans woman of color how do I support a young 22 year old into like both uh economic stability and also the skill set to take transfer this into any other kind of job but then also pull and understand that transphobia is holding us back institutionally and how to push back against that you know like it's very nuanced and I feel like it's beautiful work and very tiring (laughs) because it's doing too many things at once in some ways it's like and now make a 20 minute film go (laughs) on top of all the other stuff yeah. In so you've been at Global Action Project for a few years now. Yeah. Since what, like twenty thirteen? Since twenty thirteen you've been at Global Action Project. Um in your view, have have the some of the issues that the youth you work with face, have they changed? Have their access to services at all changed? Um, do you have any like perspective on that or take on that because I I know you work with youth from age like 14 to 24 now as we were talking about and work with youth that are underserved in a myriad of ways which I'll I'll let you talk about Um, but I'm just wondering if you had any of that any any insight about that yeah I mean 
it's funny because I think we're in a weird moment, obviously. Like, I feel like Trump... Like, it's a Florida moment. Yeah, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I work with mostly trans youth and immigrant youth. So you can imagine that the election of Trump has impacted these, these youth the most. Um, I would say that, you know, like primarily I work with black immigrant youth. I mostly work with um, Muslim youth. I mostly work with trans women, trans GNC, like folks. Like I think what I see is the clear moment in time when we're all in terror and we're all being terrorized by institutional bullshit, you know, basically. Like, I feel like um, it means that this year we had more participants than we ever had in some ways because immigrant youth are looking to each other of like, how do I survive and how do I get support and what are my rights and how do I go to college? I just want to go to college, you know? Um, but I, I, but I want to talk about it with other youth. So let me come to the space. And, um, I feel like, I think people are wanting to be involved. Like, I think we had a lot of people come to us because they were like, look, I need something to distract me. I, we do a lot of like leadership development. So that means that like half my staff are under 25. And that also means that like, you know, I had a beautiful evaluation with one of our media educators who is an alumni from like 2011, you know, and, you know, he was like, shit, like, let me reflect about this year and like when the election happened and you were like okay come work for me I was like yes because like I was just depressed and like what I needed is like a, a space to react but then by doing this job this year I realized that reaction is not what we need what we need is strategy and like what does that look like and I still think we're all figuring that out and I don't think we have the answers and um, I think it's incredibly overwhelming because every time I go to work, I don't know what it is that I'll be meant by, you know, like it could be a trans woman who just kicked out of a shelter who needs just a place to stay on the couch, or it could mean attempted suicide, which, you know, like, I feel like it's a common, you know, and and I think, I don't think the conditions are changing drastically. Like, I, I think what I realized, though, today in these moments is that we're still pretending things are normal. And at any moment, it's really nuanced with identity politics, too, because I feel like people are like, well, I'm kind of documented. I have DACA, you know, but it's like I think we're like even having those moments where it's like actually, you know, like that could be taken away from you or you know like half my youth are going to be impacted by TPS like temporary protective service of Haitian community right and like if anything 
comes back with Trump being like, nah, I'm not going to renew that. Like, that means that half those families are undocumented, you know? Can you um, just explain really briefly what that is for the Haitian community right now? Yeah, I mean, that means um, there's a temporary protective service means that after the earthquake in Haiti, basically it was okay for Haitians to immigrate to the U.S. And that is technically run out. And so we need Trump to approve its renewal or else people could get deported. And right now, the only information that we, he hasn't said anything about it. Um, But what we do know is that he's asked a lot about what is the statistics around the criminalizing Haitians, basically. (laughs) So I think the likelihood is not good, but there's a lot of organizing going around it. And so you have a number of Haitian youth participating in your programs who are going to be impacted by this. Yes. Yes. But I mean, what's beautiful is that there's a nuanced conversation. So like, I feel like what I've seen since I've started working there is even like intersectionality in a mainstream way because of Black Lives Matter, because of... um, because of the organizing work that's happening in New York City um, means that youth are coming to me at 14 being like, okay, but, you know, I'm being persecuted because I'm black, not because I'm Haitian. (laughs) And I'm being persecuted, but I also see that my Brazilian sister here is, you know, experiencing the same thing. And let's make a film about our ancestry and how we both come from Yoruban culture and this beautiful narrative about wanting to go to college but instead like having to go to the ocean to like reconnect with Yemen yeah you know like and so I feel like there's a certain nuanced um, connectedness right now that is really beautiful in our articulation of experience that I don't you know like that's missing from my narrative when I was like a young person like I don't I think there's a beautiful moment where people understand trans identity and immigrant youth come into this space and they're like my parents don't let me talk to queer people and like gravitate toward like all the GNC trans youth and are like obsessed with them. Like, can I take my picture with you? (laughs) In a way that's like partly because of, you know, the cultural, I don't know, uh, celebrity. Oh, celebrity. uh, uh, Yeah, which is different than our... Yeah, I was going to say stigma. No, we're in a weird moment where... You know, like where social media is making trans folks celebrities. And so, uh, and in, in, which means that some of the youth that I work with are both homeless and a celebrity. It's the weirdest thing. I mean, weirdest meaning like, I, I, at 21, I was still understanding what trans identity was. So like, you know, for, for a 21 year old to be like both 
you know, featured on Teen Vogue and then also Homeless is real. It's a real reality right now. Um, what do you think when you reflect on all your work that you've done trying to organize youth and do media what um, what do you think of as like your biggest success or accomplishment well yeah I mean I was telling you this story about like how I mean I think part of what has been really helpful is like coming into this organization is our ideology is driven by like the understanding of you know like youth driven and um you know political ed and you know these broad strokes of social justice and how we define it is really based on who's leading it you know and uh and what's been beautiful is like seeing my commitment to building out trans youth so like switching our LGBT focus to being more specific to trans and GNC youth or um, being really committed since I was a young organizer to making sure that we're building enough youth leadership that youth leaders can be at decision-making table for whatever reason that is like as media educators as interns as people repping the films that they make um that's been my commitment but so I think there there have been beautiful moments that I I've experienced that are just like you know making overstigmatized and having trans youth like be able to tell their narratives in a different way and seeing that trajectory then go from that to then them being a peer media educator and us having um you know 90 percent trans youth this year from like two last year you know what i mean and so i mean it's always been you know a welcoming space but i think seeing the shift of how that arch of like really being committed to a certain thing of leadership really changes the dynamic of participation. And I think being able to, as an organization, it's always been committed to, but to sort of be more open to certain risks, like having more young people take lead or um, having, you know, more focus on certain specific areas or intersectional ways or making sure that the film stay true to, to being centered by the youth in all realms. I think that's, that's something that I feel good about. Um, now I think I, I want to end with a question about the future a little bit and what, given the, you know, the climate that we're in, things um, are feeling a little bit dire, you know, um, in terms of access to resources and, and you know, there's, there feels 
like there's going to be like this imminent sort of onslaught of harm, which has some, has already started, but it's going to amplify. But um, I'm just wondering in light of the work that you do and what you're passionate about, what do you what do you envision for yourself or your work in the next few years? What direction do you hope that will take? Well, um, I don't know. I, I think that's part of the problem right now. Um, I go back and forth from being joking that we need to relocate to a different country for a while, which might be true. Um, I think to wanting to just like kind of feel more happiness with like doing more filmmaking of my own work and, you know, like supporting my community in a different way that isn't necessary through an organization or through, um, Nonprofit that has to rely on funding through these things that are connected to the institutional problem, you know? Um, so reimagining, I think there's a way that having come from the South to the North, what I can say is that um, I kind of want to go back to the basics of like, I think we've developed a certain political analysis and a certain political community that is rooted in nonprofits. And I think for me to sort of kind of come full circle and be like, yeah, and I came up in affinity groups and, and shoestring like Saturday school that was not funded and was volunteer driven, you know, and like, sort of rooting myself back into what that that organizing really comes from your love of people not from a need to be a professional way and to me that might mean a lot of different things like I live in a 20-person collective house right now and part of that is like trying to understand alternative modes of economies where we can be interdependent in a different way um, and I'm curious about that. You know, I think we're going to have to start thinking about resources as time, as resources as what do we have around the table skill-wise, and how do we get through these moments. And and I, I have to say that um, that may mean going back to the South, where I think our skill set might be better around those things <laughs> around understanding how to do that kind of work without sort of the the resources the monetary resources of the north yeah but I also think it, it's a possibility for a lot of different methods and strategies and I'm curious about them and I think um what I will say is that I'm committed to to building and staying committed to community that is both thinking intersectionally about queer people of color, about trans people, about immigrants, about 
uh, our elders, you know, and how do we get each other's backs? And I think my future is going to be tied to that. And I think what that might mean is, again, me being a little bit more resourceful around not necessarily having a professional job in it. Thank you so much for all of your filmic cinematic stories about your family and for sharing your vision and being so generous with your personal history in this oral history. Um, I really appreciate it. And I think um, it's a tremendous addition to this archive. <laughs>